0: friend, welcome to The Vital Core Salon. I'm Cara, I'm your host and your salonnière as they might say in France in the 19th century. And each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman doing her thing out in the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. Today, Susie Thornberry and I take on creating space, curiously meandering and exploring the human impact of conflict through art. The irony of touching this last topic today, on September 11th, as I'm temporarily living back in my old New York neighborhood, is not lost on me. It hits me in the feels just a little bit and takes me back to a very wild and poignant time in life. But more about Susie. She's assistant director at Imperial War Museums. We will dive into her role there, but spoiler alert, it's an incredibly rad role and not entirely shocking that Susie's in it. She's got extensive experience in arts, museums, festivals, and heritage, including past roles with Historic Royal Places, Artichoke, and Battersea Art Center. In 2016, she even produced London's Burning, a festival commemorating the 350th anniversary of the Great Fire of London, a festival where a 400-foot-long sculpture was spectacularly set ablaze on the Thames. And last year, Susie became a commissioner of Historic England. One side note, during playback of this episode, I realized we referenced a nebulous journalist, I don't want you to feel left out as a listener. That journalist would be Alex Hudson of Metro UK, who is Susie's partner and a friend to Craig and me. Not only did Alex connect Susie and I, but he was such a sport as we practically talked each other's faces off during a trip to Austin earlier this year. Before we jump to today's conversation, don't forget to share this episode with the one human you think will really dig it and don't forget to subscribe to LeVital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm going to go back to getting my rump kicked by the user experience design immersive class that I've been in since the end of July. But you, you get to meet Susie. Voila, here she is. Hey, Susie, welcome to LeVital Core Salon. Hello. I'm so excited you're here. I can't believe we're talking again. This is great. I'm so excited
1: to be talking too. I feel like we're going to go in lots of different tangents and I've got no idea what they are.
0: Based on our conversations at South by Southwest, we are certainly going to go all loopy in this, this podcast. And so hopefully people listening are buckled up and ready to explore where our brains go. (laughs)
1: They'll they'll probably have to listen to us recommending books to each other constantly and taking your own notes. um. I
0: know! (laughs) I feel like the resource list for this episode will be bananas. (laughs) Let's see. (laughs) Well, let's dive in. So your role these days is the assistant director at the Imperial War Museums. I want to make sure listeners from this side of the pond who may not have visited the museums understand what they are and their vision. Can you start by speaking to that?
1: Yeah, sure. So Imperial War Museums are five museums across the UK, and they are designed to share the human impact of conflict. And they're five quite diverse sites, actually. So we have Imperial War Museum London, Imperial War Museum Manchester. We have uh, Imperial War Museum Duxford, which is a, an airfield. We have uh, Churchill War Rooms, which is where Winston Churchill based his cabinet during the Second World War. And we have HMS Belfast. So it's a really diverse um, portfolio, as I said. And we were founded 100 years ago to show the total devastation that conflict um, can cause. And um, when we were set up, we, our first curator was literally collecting from the battlefields as, as things fell to be able to show people um, back in the UK what had gone on and to share that human impact of conflict. And I'm kind of evangelical about the museums because I believe so strongly in what they can say about this increasingly unpredictable world around us um, and pretty grandly what it can say about humanity itself. So that can range from the rise of populism to the way borders are drawn up, or to human rights. Um, So I've just come back yesterday from Manchester, in the north of England, where we are launching a public programme about the ongoing crisis in Yemen. Now I don't know how much you know about the crisis in Yemen.
0: Can you give us a bird's eye view of something that I know is so uber complicated?
1: Well, that's exactly it. So it's what the UN are calling the world's worst humanitarian crisis, yet yeah, it's a conflict that is quite complex and very little understood. So we have a, a public programme and it's called Yemen Inside a Crisis. And yesterday we were launching an interactive installation. Which is touring the public spaces of Manchester, so from train stations to markets um, to university student unions, to take the conversation about that conflict to where people are. And it uses it uses AI, it uses personal stories, and it it takes the form of a conversation between a British Yemeni spoken word artist and her family back in Yemen and you hear about what's happening there so her family's struggle to get water and the difficulties that they're experiencing there with that and then it makes you reflect on your own your own use of something like water or your own access to education so one of the questions in the one about water which was in an area that was full of bars and the one that the one about tr- transport is actually at the train station. Um, the one about water asks you if you had to think about your water consumption what's the first thing that you would stop doing and so it just asks you to connect with that crisis that can seem really remote and the the kind of daily issues that Yemeni people are facing as you go about your daily routines so that's just kind of one example of the kind of the kind of program that we um produce and the kind of thing that we do, but it but it's vast, and it's really all about the human impacts
0: of conflict. This is unbelievable to hear. I, I mean, what I find so fascinating about your work and what the museum is doing is, for me, someone who doesn't come from the art world, I'm hearing what you were saying about the original curator literally going out to the battlefields, going to get physical pieces and then bring them back to display in a museum. What I'm hearing from you now, a hundred or so years later, is you're taking the museum out to people. Was that a conscious decision by the museum? Is that just a function of modern technology? Like. Was that always what the original curator sort of hoped? How did it evolve? I think we're starting
1: to look at the role of museums differently and to see museums' um, power um, as both a a public space but also as being able to provide balanced views on things and and new perspectives on things. So I think we are becoming more and more part of the, the public narratives around uh, things like conflict. And that's why you will start to see museums doing lots of things in public spaces. Um, in the UK recently, we've seen uh, major national museums lending artworks to prisons or to doctor surgeries, just because from our perspective, we're a national museum and the collection belongs to the nation. So anything that we can do to share that collection with the nation, be it in terms of public conversations or art installations or being able to share objects in different ways, that that it is absolutely the nation's co- collection. So it's it's great for us to be able to do that. And it's an extension of, of that original purpose, I think.
0: Do you see art or museums as a lever for change? Totally. God, we've gone there straight away. I'll figure oh,
1: out I later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do. I th- and I, I think they absolutely can. And I, the work that we do is just so incredibly powerful. And I told you I was evangelical about the museums. But we just we just have the power with that collection and what it can say about where we are today and, and how we've ended up politically in situations or socially in situations um, that has the ability to make people think differently about things to be more open-minded to to kind of add to public discourse so you were, were saying that Yemen is complex and it absolutely is so if we can with them um, conflicts like that if we can provide people with a background of this it is complex but this is what's happening then they feel that they can participate in debate around those conflicts um, because that because they're equipped with the knowledge or because they've had the opportunity to ask questions that they might not feel comfortable asking in a public setting otherwise and contemporary conflict is complex and it feels to me certainly like terminology is constantly changing should I say this should I say something else so if we, can, um, if we can provide with that 100 years of history a bit of, of grounding with that, it just feels like there are so many ways that I think our, our museum can, can change lives. But that certainly is one of them, making people think about their place in the world and also helping people to, to become ready to, to have conversations about that or to, to look at difficult bits of history um, in a way that they might feel nervous about previously.
0: So I feel like listening to what you're sharing about the museum, it makes me think of a past conversation I had with Amy Gardner. And in it, she touched on activist art, I believe during the the Weimar Republic in Germany. And it was it's a part of history, or at least that social piece of it in the history of Germany that I wasn't that familiar with. And she was sort of talking about art as activism, how do you as the assistant director balance where art could be activist versus again, like the the pieces in this museum belong to the people of the UK? So we have
1: some, some core principles. So one is to be courageous. One is to be authoritative. One is to be relevant and one is to be empathetic. And we always have those in mind. And we, try to provide a a balanced view and that includes presenting different perspectives on things and and providing different platforms for debate so we aren't an activist organization we we just absolutely aren't we we're there to give people context is, is how i think of us um is it useful for me to talk about what my job is Yes. So I look after public engagement and learning at the the museum's five sites. And that means I look after programmes for schools, families, young people and adults. And I very much see it as my role to ask questions. Our museums are full of some of the most completely brilliant minds. And it's my job to take their specialist knowledge and to interpret it for non-specialists like me. So that means very often when I don't, I'm not a subject specialist, I have to be unafraid to ask difficult questions or admit when I don't know things. And that often involves putting my hand up and saying, I'm the only person in this room that doesn't know, but but please explain this to me in more detail.
0: (laughs) I'm sure there's probably some silent, collective sighs of relief if there was someone else in the room that everyone thought knew something that didn't, was probably so relieved when you were like, all right, I don't get it. Get me up to speed. In any
1: work setting I've ever had, I I always have that with acronyms. When someone finally says, sorry, what does that mean? And And there's just a collective sigh of relief around the room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just faking it till they're making it.
1: <laughs> exactly. But i think often actually about something that um a brilliant lady ursula K. Le Guin said and and she said the soundest facts fail or prevail in the style of telling and i i kind of see that as my job um the style of telling so It could be creating a piece of theatre to encourage um, school children to think critically and to analyse sources and think about where their information is coming from. It could be the sort of programme I described where we create an art installation about the public understanding around what's happening in Yemen. But the way of looking at things and the way of presenting that history is, is very much a part of my job.
0: Susie, I think you know that I developed a huge intellectual crush on you when we met earlier this, this year. Cannot be true, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a place that I'm interested in going in this conversation is what is your role in bringing these installations and also I would say experiences, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're very experiential sometimes. How do you pull those together? Like what is your role in that creative process? And then how do you think about this stuff?
1: That's a great question. And I will give full credit to the team actually with that. Um, (laughs) So I have a really wonderful, wonderful, skilled, brilliant team. And one of the key things about them is they're drawn from different disciplines. So we've got former theatre producers, we've got former teachers, we've got academics, we've got digital producers, um, we've got former journalists. And what we try to do at the beginning of a project is to get all of those brilliant brains um, thinking about that subject. So we're about to launch um, something in London, which looks at what happens when culture is attacked as an act of war. So that might be buildings being destroyed, or that might be books being burned or music being suppressed but when when culture is is targeted um, as an act of war and we come together as a team and think about that and then think about the audience and who it's for so in that case it was for an adult audience and we we think about the best way of connecting those audiences with that subject matter and what we think the interesting and important stories are and also what we think people want to hear but also what we want to hear from them so so many of our programs are very very audience focused and we encourage people to give us feedback and we bring audiences in to do testing and focus groups and and i love that i love it when either artists or audiences or different kinds of, of people that that we encounter reveal something that we didn't know about our collection to us that i think is my favorite thing and they might just ask a a simple question or they might come with their own knowledge that just makes you look at something completely sideways um and we work with some of the world's experts on on our subject matter and even they encounter that sometimes and they go ah oh, I hadn't thought about that and if I hadn't encountered that person then I then I would have missed that bit of of knowledge and I might as well tell you about the program that I was just describing and what we did come up with around culture under attack Please. Um, so so there are there are three exhibitions. One is called What Remains, and it's about um, when material culture is attacked. Um, we've got one which looks at the Second World War and what was seen as a priority to be saved uh, for the nation in terms of our art collection. And we've got one called Rebel Sounds, which is it tells amazing stories of people who risk their lives for the music they love. And I'm so, so, so excited about the live events program with this. We're doing something we're calling Rebel Sounds Live. And it's an opportunity to come to Imperial War Museum London and to hear the music from these amazing musicians who did risk their lives for the music they love. The first one is around Syria. So we've got the pianist of Yarmouk, who was playing on the streets of Syria, and then they kept trying to destroy his um his piano he was trying to lift people's spirits and and give them something to to keep those spirits high and we've got the first ever example of syrian heavy metal we've got the first ever syrian heavy metal gig in the uk happening at imperial war museum london i know um and again he he's such an interesting individual who just says i'm a musician that's what i am and that's what i've continued to be it's just the circumstances that have forced me into this situation. So, what we can offer is, under our incredible objects that are in our museum, we we can provide that backdrop and the context of these great um, performances. But then we're running conversation events, so it's a chance for people to hear these stories and to to meet these, these incredible people. Um, I'll keep using the word incredible about them because they really are, they really are extraordinary stories. And what we often talk about is, uh, it's. It's stories of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances that's what our collection is and actually during the Second World War when the government and various um, intellectuals were prioritizing what to save our collection that was part of the, the conversation it's not great high art it's our, our collection is very ordinary and, and at the time that was potentially seen as an as a negative thing was potentially less valuable um, now, I'm not sure that decision would be made now, but it's says something much broader and, and very interesting about where we were and where we are, I
0: think. It is so amazing. Like when I hear what you're creating and you know from many of our conversations previous, like I have just been geeking out and and really digging into user experience design. And I think, you know, sometimes people think that's, solely like how you interact with an app or how you interact with a website but it's also like how people are interacting with art I'm curious if you could share how people react when they're touching or looking at or hearing I mean everything you're describing is so multi-sensory right what happens as people are interacting with it we get we get all we get all of the emotions um we i think different people
1: react in different ways and we do try to to provide very sensory options sorry um programs for people but the nature of material culture and of the the really large objects that we have means that people react in a very physical way to things but actually I'm getting more and more interested in our sound archive um, and in our eyewitness programmes. We ran earlier last year, it was the centenary commemorations for the end of the the First World War and we had a very, very simple um, installation which was called Room of Voices. And they were interviews which were collected during the 60s and 70s of people who were at armistice, so people who were there on the 11th of November, 1918. And we very simply presented the voices, and as you exited, you saw the pictures of those people and you learnt a little more about them. But it ranged from people who were on the front to uh, the, the, the most sort of poignant one was a mother who thought that her son was going to be safe because it was armistice and actually he died four hours after. Um, So I know it was so simple, but actually just hearing from those people who were there and how, how that impacted them um, was so powerful. And that's a hundred, you know, that's a hundred years ago. Um, And you could have just been talking to someone now. So, it is very multi-sensory um, and I think because we're all about the human impact and all about personal stories, we have to, to think carefully, particularly um, there are no um, surviving eyewitnesses of the, of the First World War. So we have to think about how we use our, our sound archive, particularly in the future.
0: What's so amazing to me hearing this is how much you've been able to collect. Where does it all come from? How do you amass this collection? I know this is a huge question, right? Like for someone who works in the art space, but to think you just have this isolated sound recording of someone from 1918 is sort of mind blowing and that it's there and it's cataloged and it can be pulled out. Yeah, so
1: that so the the sound recordings I was talking about, they, though they were there in in 1918, the recordings were taken later in the 20th century. Just to clarify, because Grace that will tell me off about that. It's not my specialism, but what I can say is the collection is vast, and we have we have different collecting strategies and different priorities. And I was talking earlier about Yemen, and actually sourcing the objects for that program is incredibly difficult. It's a it's an ongoing conflict. And none of our curatorial team were able to access the country, so we have to work with various um, NGOs to try and help us keep adding to our collection. But it's a it's a huge undertaking, and we have a big curial, curatorial team dedicated to collecting those objects um, and documenting and recording them and interpreting them for the public.
0: So let me make sure I understand: if it's the cart leading the horse, or the horse leading the cart? In terms of process, I'm picturing someone gets an idea, a meeting is called, Mm. specialists who could be helpful for bringing this idea to fruition are brought together in some way. I'm guessing you're facilitating some of that or all of that. And then objects that would round out the experience and tell the story are then tracked down is this right i know this is like such an oversimplification of what you're doing but i'm trying to understand no it is
1: right let me add more to it um so we have various collecting strategies and that might be that we we want to collect more let's say about the cold war so we'll have priorities um within that and that will have its own um collecting strategy so we have curators who are heads of time, as it were, sort of time lords. So we've got one for the Cold War, we've got one for contemporary conflicts, one for the Second World War and one for the First um, World War. And we, as well as those, we kind of have media specialists. So we have a, a head of photographs and head of film, et cetera. So that we're looking at the collection in, in different ways. Um, and they will identify gaps in the in the collection. But alongside that, the public programme um it might be that we want to talk about contemporary conflict or with culture under attack um that uses things that are already in our collection it will look at things that we're still looking to collect and it will also involve um loans so so for temporary shows lots of museums will involve um many different loans i was at the british museum only today for their manga exhibition that they've got at the moment and lots of of those loans have have come over from japan so it's a real mixture and actually it involves a lot of cooperation between between different museums and different departments within each museum does that make more sense
0: yes yes (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) because I was kind of trying to think like were you bringing stuff out of the archives so to speak or was it you have this idea and then you have to go find a heavy metal band from Yemen (laughs) to round out this experience (laughs) right like it's hard to tell like how this all comes together but it 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 might just be a very messy, circular process, too. I might be trying to make something linear in my head that is actually very iterative and circular.
1: So I think there, there are kind of different elements to it. So one is the, the kind of bigger collection strategy. So what, what do we want to hold that are able to tell that 100 years of, of conflict history? And then the bit that you described where we think, okay, let's get let's get um, a heavy metal band in or someone with this experience, that might not necessarily add to our collection, but what it does is it adds to the interpretation of our collection or it adds to, um, it provides a different perspective on, on something. Um, so things that are in the public programme don't necessarily, it's not necessarily the case that we collect absolutely everything that we uh, represent in the public programme. And that allows us to, to be both long term in our, in our representation of, of that history, but also to take opportunities and say we're interested in this person and their experience or we're interested in this new research or we want to talk about migration or we want to talk about um, music in, in this context. But it then allows us to explore that without it always being tied to an object, though it's, though the, uh, the initial idea will be grounded in, in the collection.
0: How are you balancing so many multiple projects and priorities? Right? Like I feel like it's just like such layered work.
1: Cuz you- I feel like that's such a good interview question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. What well, you were going to you were going to answer the question. I guess how do you keep track of everything? Right? Because I'm seeing there's a project that involves all different people. Then there's like the experience you want people to have. There's all the sensory considerations to make with a lot of these things. How do you just even keep it all in your head? Like to me, like just even trying to think about what you do exhaust me mentally. So
1: we have different teams with different specialisms and they have to work really closely together. So the cura- the wonderful curators that we work with bring the knowledge of the collection. Um, my team will be thinking about audiences in the way that we might um, share something with the public. Um, then we have... Um, the sort of communications team who think about how we're gonna how we're gonna get the message out there more widely and what press we want want to invite to things. Um, we think about how we're gonna share things on social media. So, we've got such a skilled team that they're all thinking about different aspects of that, but they have to work really closely together. And it it has to always be about audiences for us. It's all about um, what we want audiences to experience and how we want audiences to respond. It's, it's probably your user
0: experience question again yeah I, again i think this is partly why we bonded because the work that you're doing it's impossible to think that people aren't experiencing a whole range of emotions
1: yeah i i think they are actually and i one of the words that i mentioned that we think about a lot is is empathy um and One of the things that struck me when I arrived, actually, and this sounds glib, but it is really important, is everyone at IWM is so nice. And I think if you work with that subject matter, it makes you empathetic in a really different way. You're you're looking at some of the biggest disasters or or atrocities that that humankind have ever faced. That gives people, I think, an extra bit of of humility.
0: How do you not burn out just being waist deep in topics that the average person would try to put out of their head at any given moment
1: more generally i probably have various um ways i try not to burn out some of those probably encourage burning out so i I run a lot (laughs) (laughs) i would say this i run i run a lot um I don't know there's something about the motion of that that lets me kind of work and and wander through things including my thoughts um and it lets me kind of notice things I wouldn't notice otherwise um there's a family of ducks on the canal that I've got a very great relationship with at the moment and I'm watching them almost every day um grow up over the last couple of weeks but that kind of motion um, and taking that time to myself to just go and, and run and hang out with my ducks that I find really, really helpful in it, and it gives me the the headspace um, that I need and I suppose quite a lot of that for me is about making sure that I've got time outside I don't know if you've ever heard this but um, the writer David Mitchell said trees are a relief after people <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of know what it means Um I think I love that. And I think you and I have talked about this. I love to uh, you and where you live as well. You will certainly
0: have this. We have trees. We have trees. Got, we have mountains. <laughs> so you will remember that. <laughs> trees
1: are a relief after people. Um, so There are various kind of little secret spots and gardens that I slope off to. And I just need to, to kind of take a moment. Um, there's this gorgeous place in East London. It's called St. Dunstan's in the East. And it was a church. And during the Second World War, it was bombed and rather than um, restore it or repair it or actually just completely knock it down, they left it and sort of turned it into a garden. So it's this incredible ruin of this old church that has just been left to, to let nature grow inside it. Um, so I love to go and just sit there and take a moment's peace. And I think that probably is one of the, one of the things that I do to, to avoid burnout. It's just those things that let me get outside and, and just take a moment to myself as well as art and books and music and all the various joys that I get from those
0: things where does this love of history come from for you right because i'm i'm hearing like your tools for coping with with what you're you're touching for topics every day but where does that drive to come back to this really sometimes probably heavy, heavy work come from?
1: I find history really, really grounding. And it's what I was alluding to earlier. I think we're all kind of flailing around and trying to figure out what to do with ourselves in the world. And we can probably do worse than look look back at who and and what have have gone before us. Um, And I think we just we have so much to to learn from history, and I spend so many times going 'twas ever thus.' Do, do you know about this? Do you know about that? <laughs> um, not in quite the finger wagging way. That I just made that seem, but I'm just always interested in the kind. Of, I'm, I'm interested in people, and I'm interested in stories, and and history is full of stories. Um, and I'm always interested in the great minds that have gone before, and the different human experiences, and and what what they can help me to learn about where i am and, and in my job I, I feel really lucky and really privileged to be able to to think about that more broadly and what we can learn today and where we are in the world from um particular IWM through through the history of conflict
0: when you look at the role you're in now which seems like such a great fit for you was this a role that you th- thought you would end up in and you had sort of decided I'm going to do all the things to get to this role or was it a more circuitous? Was it a more circuitous path? I love the word
1: circuitous. Um, (laughs) If you can say it. (laughs) It's a great word though. Um, It was a very circuitous path. Uh, See I just repeated it so I got to say it myself. So I have had a lot of different jobs. I've been a wedding planner. I used to work in jewellery and sell diamonds, I have worked in theatre, um, I've worked in museums and I don't think I ever ended up, ever thought that I would end up where I am today but each one of those experiences kind of has something in common and what is the common thread throughout my career is asking people to look differently at maybe sites or stories or places that seem familiar um so with something like the second world war or city squares even and i think that's why imperial war museums hired me because they were looking to shift perceptions of of iwm and people think we only cover the first and second world war or people might think that we are memorial sites and and as you have when neither of those things so that experience that i've got in theater and and planning weddings maybe. <laughs> um yeah. but the vast experience that, that I've got in those different settings, it felt like I I was able to just look slightly differently in this subject matter. Um so before before this role I worked on the um 350th commemorations of the Great Fire of London and the centrepiece of that we worked with lots of young people who weren't in employment education and training. And we built a representation of 17th century London um, the size of a football pitch out of wood. We floated it on the River Thames in London and we burnt it.
0: (laughs) When I watched the video from this in preparation for our interview today, it's mind blowing that these are the types of events that you produce. Like when you go to work, that's what you make it work right? Which feels so funny to me as I sit in a windowless sewing room from 1957 recording conversations, right? Like, it's these huge events that, like, straddle all different spheres of learning, of art, of history, of contemporary culture, right? Like, I mean, that's only what we've just barely scratched the surface on, let alone I'm sure there's there's so many other overlapping pieces like in your mind where this is coming from.
1: I think scale is, is important. And I always love working on, on large scale things. Um, but I, but talking about you sitting in a room recording conversations that I, I believe in that too. And we have a whole raft of programs that we call We Were There. And it's eyewitnesses of conflict so it's anyone with direct experience it could be a veteran it could be an aid worker it could be a refugee it could be a journalist and with different audiences we work with those eyewitnesses in different ways so for schools the, the section the sessions are a little more structured for families we do kind of drop in come and come and meet someone but the conversations that happen as a result of having an eyewitness on gallery so someone who maybe has been forced to, to leave their home and, and been displaced by war with a member of the public that, that is a transformational um, experience so the power of conversations to just change the way you look at things I totally believe in that and we, we see that time and time again in that programme and we get so many letters thanking those individuals for, for their insights and for their experiences and for, for being brave enough and generous enough to, to share them with the public.
0: Yes, I deeply believe in the power of conversations, but I think to me what's fascinating is everything that I have made in my life is invisible, right? Like when I got my start in troubled debt restructuring, it's coming in and turning around a situation that's highly fraught, really stressful, quite hostile, and turning a situation around so that hopefully the company doesn't have to close its doors and can keep everyone employed and continue without being a going concern. And then even in terms of like coaching for the last decade, it's all invisible. So the idea that you make something that is like out in the world is just so fascinating and awe-inspiring for me.
1: Do you think it's invisible? It's just that that maybe maybe that one other person sees it but so many other people feel the impact of that work it's interesting yes. that you, it's interesting that you use the word invisible there I think
0: yeah like I think trajectories change I think like what you're what you're describing in in terms of creating transformational conversation right like I know there have been clients that you know, a couple of years after we worked together, either sent me a letter, sent me an email or asked if they could give me a call or drop by. And then, you know, I, I had one client who she booked a Pilates appointment because she didn't want to tip me off what she was going to do. And so I was expecting to give her a Pilates session at the time. And she was just coming for that. And we had worked together, you know, in terms of coaching. And she showed up in, you know, clothes from work and I was like where's your get up to work out and she said actually I wanted this to be a little bit more of a surprise and then took out pictures of the new partner that she had met and Uh and the house that they were buying and the dog and like all of these positive changes that she had made in her life from the time of our last session until that moment That was, like, just a completely, like, mind-blowing experience for me. But it was one that was incredibly rare. You know, sometimes I would get the highlight or I would see on social media, like, some big changes people were making. But there were very few times in the past decade that I actually had someone come back and really say, I was thinking about our work and, you know... I got to this place because of this conversation we had. And I got to this place because of that conversation we had. And I came away from that session with this idea, you know, that sort of popped into my brain after our talk. And, you know, the the tangle of of these different conversations ended up with me being in this place in my life. So there were certainly those kinds of experiences, but it was very rare that I got to see it come full circle. If that makes sense, it does
1: make sense. But I'm kind of I'm kind of obsessed with that phenomenon. That <laughs> I, I'm sure it's happened to you too. Me too. Where you have I don't know. You might meet someone on a bus and have one conversation with them, and that just changes everything. Or someone opens a door for you and says one sentence that just that just jars you and actually sends you in a completely different direction. And that's happened to me. Maybe a handful of times in my life, and I know we're getting off topic, but that I'm always fascinated. by the the power of conversations and the the power of connections between people that 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 drives me a lot. And I think I, that's why I keep saying I'm I'm so passionate about IWM because those conversations that we can have in in that place, and the best thing we can do is is make a free space for people to be able to to say what they need to say and ask the questions they need to to be able to ask. Um, to make those connections and to look at challenges people have with connecting or differences of opinion and to, to be able to kind of come through them and, and yeah be able to create better connections as a result of it I've said the word connections a lot of time but a lot of times but
0: I, I find that endlessly fascinating it is so important and I guess then let me let me follow up with you How do you think about generating human connection as you go about a day? Because I feel like you probably geek out and obsess about that as much as I do. Yeah, we've talked about this, haven't we? Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're either both mental or we're both onto something. I can't tell which one it is.
1: (laughs) I've got no idea. What was your question? How many, t- how much
0: or how? Like, do you think about it? Like, I, here's an example. Like I think about it almost every time I send an email to someone and I feel like I break a lot of the rules that people have about email etiquette, that it needs to be like three sentences and it has to be really fast. And I feel like I look at even something like an email as this is an opportunity for, for a human connection and sometimes it literally is just purely logistic do you want to meet at this time or this time that kind of thing but i think you know even when i invite people to the podcast it's really important to me to think about what does this person need to make a decision about being on this podcast what does the person need to know at this point point? and that's something in almost every point of contact or touch point that i have with people all day long is important for me to think about like do you have any parallels
1: I think constantly in my life but in my job there are lots of examples of that and that is because I have to think about the things that people bring with them when they enter a museum of war and conflict and the kind of space that that puts you in and the things that you can do to put people in a place where they're they're able to kind of approach that subject matter or engage with that subject matter. Um, we, we have Holocaust galleries. so that contains some of the most difficult stories and difficult um, examples of humanity that you'll ever encounter. And to be able to, to be able to talk to the public about that and to talk to people about that, we have to be mindful. Of the way that we are presenting that information and the, the environment around it um, so I think about it constantly um, we're looking at creating a new new um, spaces for learning at one of our sites and we had a very heated conversation about color the other day and you know do you want to do you want to work walk into those spaces of learning particularly in relation to our subject matter and to have them very dark no probably not um, so, yeah, I constantly think about it. And what we can do, as with you thinking about what people need to be in, on your podcast, what, what do people need? And particularly around um, some of the complexities of, with conflict that I was talking about earlier, what do people need to not feel inadequate or nervous if they don't know the answer to something? I constantly don't know the answer to things, but and I have to be mindful of that, that where people people bring that with them um, yeah so so what can we do to to help people feel that they can ask difficult questions or questions that without making them feel bad for not knowing the answer to things or, or all those sorts of various things
0: when i hear you talk about how you Create the, the container for people to have these experiences and to learn in this way. When I hear you talk about distilling complex ideas and situations down into a way adults can hear it and how do children hear it differently than adults, and when I hear you you talk about constantly not knowing the answer to things, I also hear a vulnerability and a courageousness around actually raising your hand and saying, Yeah, I'm I'm not on the same page here. I'm I'm missing something. Can you break this down for me? That is something that was a very hard lesson for me to to learn. I feel like that's something a lot of the overachievers listening might not even want to touch with a stick. Was that something that is just part of your DNA and and part of the fabric of who you are or was that something you had to learn to be better at?
1: I think I'm always curious about things and I think I benefit if I don't know the answer from saying I don't know the answer can you tell me um and that is probably part of the fabric of who of who I am and I think that's a great point of conversation, you know, in, in work or not. Not at work. Oh, I haven't heard about this story um, that's on the news at the moment. Or, no, I don't know about that. No, I don't know what that acronym me- <laughs> means. I think that's part of who I am. And that I feel I love learning. And I don't generally feel ashamed if I don't know the answer um, to something. I'm just excited to, to be learning something
0: new. So it's just very natural for you, is what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's quite hard to unpick it, which must mean yes, but um, <laughs> it, it is natural.
0: It's it's autopilot for you, or well, it's I, not. It's not conscious. One thing I know
1: is that I'm always excited about things, and it's very <laughs> it's very easy to make me. And it's probably we've got a vast portfolio of, of work that we do, and and. You're right that I have to retain a lot of information in my in my brain about the different things, but I'm always fascinated to learn about these these different subjects. Um, so yeah, that kind of drives me. Be learning new things is a, is a kind of really important thing to me.
0: So it sounds like. Your willingness to seize an opportunity to learn something new always is is going to smash any shame you would feel or potentially feel about not knowing something in advance. I
1: think if it's something that I think I should know about, then I probably do feel shame. just, to, <laughs>
0: just <to clarify. laughs> How dare it's a, you be human, Susie? <laughs> <laughs> if it, you know, if it's something I think
1: I should probably know this, then I'll probably say I should probably know this and I don't and I'm going to uh, slap myself on the wrist. I think it just depends how you how you look at that and if the context is someone talking about um, a particular specialism I don't feel ashamed to say oh I don't know about this but I'd like to to know more I don't that doesn't come with shame to me that that comes with um that comes with opportunity and excitement and to learn new stuff.
0: So I feel like there's also a A curse of curiosity. And there have been moments in my life where I've actually referred to it as that, where that just wanting to explore and learn and splash or thrash around in new information and new ideas can sometimes be exhausting. You know, there are points where I've gone down a rabbit hole where I just think I'm going to go to Wikipedia to look up one thing, and then, you know, three hours later, I've been all over the interweb and now I'm probably a specialist on this topic. How do you balance that kind of learning and also just staying informed about sometimes contemporary conflict without burning yourself out?
1: I suppose this, this comes onto something we've, t- we've talked about before, which is both of our relationship to the news as well. Um, is, that, is that fair to say? yeah Ah, oh, it's such an interesting question i probably think about this daily i get r- really overstimulated easily because of what you've just described because uh, i'm curious about things and i can quite easily feel bombarded with information so I'm, I'm quite careful about how i access the news um and i i try to read a mixture of Of long form content, um, and thoughtful articles with the most partisan, trashy rags I can get my hands on because I think (laughs) it's important to know what's, what's being said. Um, and just like, just like you, you know, I let my mind wander and I go deep into the social theory of soap operas or, or voting rights, you know, like you, I become an expert. And also, that's great when that comes out. It usually comes out in social situations where you meet where you meet someone who is an expert, and, and you see, and that that information is stored at the back of your mind. But in terms of how I avoid that, we've talked about this before. I'm not on any social media, and I know that that is seen as strange. But I've never wanted to be. Um, and that people people used to be horrified about that, particularly with Facebook. They used to be utterly horrified that I, that I wasn't on it. Um, but now Facebook is something that's being used by parents and by younger people. It's totally not a cool thing to, to be interested in. So I'm, I'm still standing back watching this phenomenon and going, hmm, this is interesting. So I think I, I'm quite broad in in how i access information but actually i'm quite careful about how i access it and i don't like to feel bombarded i read ali smith recently this has had a big impact on me this thing that i read um i read in her book um autumn that you stop learning things when you can choose your own books and i was horrified so i've tried to um i've tried to get people to recommend new books to me What I've learned about that is people just keep recommending me books about feminist memoirs is what people keep recommending (laughs) me. So never ask people to recommend you books to diversify the books
0: (laughs) that you read. Um, (laughs) Why do you think that is? That that is like where everyone sends you?
1: I don't know. This, oh, you know, I uh, I am a feminist, and I'm interested in people's lives. So maybe it's just as simple as, as those as those two things. But I think it is hilarious, and I've I've read some fantastic books as a result of this new approach. But I would like people to recommend me some books that make me really angry and I hate. Um, that would be great. And the other interesting thing, I suppose, um, about my relationship with information and and the news, and you know this of course because you know, is that. I spend a lot of time with a journalist, so I spend a lot of time thinking about the news. And he has a totally different approach. He needs it all the time, whereas I'm I'm trying to quiet things down. He he needs access to to every news story going.
0: Yes, watching Alex in in action and his ability to just like pfft, through information and like know the pulse of things is really really impressive. And it's so it's got to be such an interesting balance for you too, right? Where you're like, okay, I picture it almost like being in the back of a limousine, right? Where like the glass comes up, and you're just like, great, I've had enough news and information today. Thank you. <laughs> Do I get to be the one in that limousine drinking
1: champagne? The yes, you're. The you're putting the, yes, you're putting the glass up. You're
0: like you're barricading yourself from the information
1: i'm a terrible driver so that's great (laughs)
0: Um, that's the curse of living in london right that's true
1: we don't we don't need we don't need to drive that's why it took me four times to pass my test um (laughs) but yeah i think that's you and i have talked about this as well the um the ability to just kind of shut things off and just say okay i'm not gonna look at a screen for the next few hours
0: I'm so impressed, like, your ability to have stayed off social media, like, to this point. Like, there are days where I wish I could take, like, the virtual match to it. It's funny, like, my relationship with social media, there is a part of me that is like, well, at least I can stay connected to the people in my life and know what's going on, especially friends who have small kids, like, I know, like, that's a season of their life where they're kind of really hard to get a hold of to have a one on one conversation. But I can at least I can see the kids grow up. I like, kind of have a sense of like, oh, they went on a vacation. Good. I'm glad she got out because last time I talked to her, it seemed like they were stressed out. And there's that piece of it. And then on the other side, I feel like sometimes why am I accepting this shit? as a substitute for genuine human connection. It's
1: really tricky though cuz I see I totally see the benefits of it, particularly when you have friends all over the world. I just know it's it's just not it's not right for me, and I'm sure that means I miss out on so many things that I'm that I'm unaware of, but I'm unaware of them, so I'm telling myself I'm fine.
0: <laughs> I think you're fine. But how do you how do you take in all this information? And then sort of turn it into something so creative. Like, I I can't imagine that everything you're taking in isn't getting, like, cataloged in some way. Are there certain questions that you're asking yourself as you're sort of filtering things? You You mean at work? Or in life.
1: I think at work... And I've got a colleague who's absolutely brilliant at doing this she's always asking why you know why we're we doing this why 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 and it's so great because people just get just including me people um always in every situation get distracted with what they're doing and they forget to to reflect on on the kind of core purpose and I think that is a that's a great question to always ask and I I at work often ask, you know, why, why are we doing this now and why can only we do this? Because there, so there are so many different aspects to our subject matter, but it, it has to be relevant. It has to be related to our collection and we have to be able to say something unique about it. Um, it's always asking, you know, why? I think there's that whole movement, start with why.
0: Yes, it's such a good book for anyone who hasn't read it. So it sounds like why is an important question, can I be annoying and say another quote? So
1: um, my siblings have hysterics about this. So when we um, when you go to university here, you have to write a, a personal statement about yourself. And the top of mine, I don't know why I did this. I wrote a George Bernard Shaw quote. And the quote is something like, um, some people see things as they are and ask why. And others dream things they aren't and ask why not. And I still think about that and how, what a great thing that is, that people that just see the possibilities and think, why, is, why does that not exist? Why is that not a thing? Um, so that's the kind of flip side to why.
0: Yes. So I'm buzzing with what you just said, because one of the questions that I use constantly, and I don't know if people notice this about me, especially in emails, like when I'm dissecting something or even when I'm in a, a face-to-face situation. I come back to the question of what's possible right like I feel like sometimes everyone can get mired in here's the 952 reasons why we can't do something and I'm sure you probably face that in the work that you do some days but I love really pushing people into that space of what is possible. Right. Like it might not the idea that we've been discussing or the the thing we're considering. It might be big and complex and it might not end up being what we want it to be. But what is possible in this situation? And it's amazing what that opens. And I think especially with women, I also see it encourage negotiation in like really small ways, too, which always excites me.
1: I think. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I I learned from one of the the best people um, that approach. So I used to work for a company called Artichoke um, here in the UK and they do large-scale outdoor events and public performances. And the very first event that the company did was they shut central London so that a giant, I think it was a 40-foot elephant puppet and a beautiful girl could roam the streets of London and be free and turn London into a playground um, for the day. Now, that was in 2006, and, and public performances of that scale are, are if not common, are, are more common now. But she was really the one who paved the way for that, and managed to persuade councils to take out roundabouts so she could implant a fake rocket that would start the story that these two creatures had landed in this rocket and trying to to get to bring people along with her with this vision that we could turn the streets into a into a playground for a day and um, she's always thinking about what's possible and so much of her work is about managing is about managing risk and managing other people's fear and about acknowledging that that is a vast range and that's a that's a broad spectrum and very often it's not the person who's going to to say yes to taking out the roundabout it might be one person who works in one room somewhere and every day for the last 30 years they've turned off a particular light at a particular time and that you're asking them to disrupt that routine it it's, it might be that person that makes what you're doing impossible but so just acknowledging the part of everybody in in the sort of projects that that is that kind of scale and, and working with her was such an amazing lesson in what's possible is it possible when two women in Doc martin say they want to shut the streets of london for five days um for, <laughs> for, a, for a giant elephant and actually it was the most joyful thing and, and people in london still talk about that as a really kind of life-changing moment that just that just lifted their spirits and it wasn't shutting the streets because of sport or for a military parade. It was about art and it was about being playful.
0: And I feel like when presented with an experience like that, people come away thinking that was just amazing. It's it's transformational. They felt joy. They were playful. It inspired all these feelings. I have to wonder in hearing you describe it, like what other skills have you really had to bring in to get that person who shuts a light off at a particular moment every single day and may have done that for 35 years previous? How do you get them to see your vision? How do you get them to think about what's possible? What have you seen work?
1: It goes back to your question around thinking about making a space for people probably. I think Everyone is different and there's no there's no one size fits all for this for this approach to things. It, it is generally about about the wider vision. But people buy into visions for different reasons and, and I think you have to acknowledge that. So it's it's a difficult question t- to give a solid answer to because I think it it's about connection and it's about people and it's about what each person brings to what you're asking them.
0: I have to feel like there are skills that you're employing though. Like is it is it listening? Is it the types of questions you're asking? Is it the creating an environment for them? What can women listening who are really wanting to bring something into fruition in their life, but they have people around them that are going, "Nah, not possible, can't do. I feel like there has to be be some wisdom and experience that you can share for those women?
1: It probably goes back to a slightly different slant on on the why not. And it is probably about empathy. So it's just what is making people, um, why not? If someone is saying no, it, it's getting them to think about why not and what's the worst that's going to happen if that thing does happen. You know, what what are you managing? What What is behind the fear that you're managing? And actually, I've got someone on my team at the moment who, is one of the best people i've ever met at doing that at, at looking at even when people um are saying no to her she was such grace is able to think okay well what is it that is making that person nervous or anxious or fearful um of this thing that i'm suggesting this change that i'm suggesting um so em- empathy is probably the the biggest thing and And I think we probably work in a museum full of them because of the nature of our subject matter.
0: Got it. I want to switch gears a little bit here. How have you come to choose such progressive ideas and such challenging projects? I mean, just even the scale alone, again, sort of blows my mind. Rather than just kind of be doing the same old let's let's hang a picture on a wall or let's combine these couple of paintings and and tell this story what gets you to go there
1: I think I'm a magpie I think I just collect ideas from from people and from different experiences and because of that i don't have a i don't have a particular practice i'm not from an art background i'm not from a museum background i'm not from a theater background i've I've worked in all of those places and that and that's probably why i love my brilliant wonderful team that have come from from those different places too and that makes while someone might default to doing something through theater or someone might say let's do a public lecture um it's having that diversity of experience to draw on to say, okay, but what's the best way of communicating this idea?
0: So you're not actually married to any of the disciplines that you've touched, but you're able to just draw from them.
1: You're asking me to pick favorite children. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I see so much, and I think it's so important if you, if you work in this kind of work, to, to just see things and read things. It, it comes back to that curiosity. And I do try and encourage the the team to to see as much as possible um, because that is where you get your ideas and, and your inspiration from.
0: I know we've touched on this in personal conversations before this podcast today. And I know I've shared with you where I'm at in terms of being between act two and act three of kind of my professional life. And I, I have to think when I hear about your experience and sort of... You've sold diamonds, you've planned weddings, you've produced all these events, you're working in art. I keep coming back to the words not fitting in the box. And I I know for me that's that's been a challenge where I feel like I've I've had these very different acts in my professional life, but there are some connections that run through them, some threads that stitch it all together. Have you ever felt that challenge of just not fitting in the box i think i probably
1: am attracted in my work life to places that see that as a positive And whilst it might be it might be difficult it might not be to everyone's taste and it might be difficult for some people that actually i i tend to have worked in places that embrace that diversity of experience and, and see the, the value in it it's why i've created a team full of of different kinds of people if, if someone has worked in a bank then they are bringing that extra bit of experience and that extra perspective to, to what we're doing so I think sometimes it can make it challenging if, if you're in an environment where you're trying to work in a new way and trying to communicate that can be difficult so when I first started working in museums I very much used the language of theatre and it took me quite a long time to understand that the way I was communicating was I was saying the same thing but in a slightly different way Um, and all I had to do was use a slightly different language to to be able to communicate better with people but you don't realize that you're kind of slipping into this professional language and I remember my team told me a great story yesterday when we were saying that working with young people is such a is such a great leveler when it comes to language and the way you communicate and how you can slip in i know this is, a, is slightly off topic but how you can slip into using kind of buzzwords so you know words like impact and diversity and community and all of these these words that we all use but when you work with young people they just tell you <laughs> that you're talking nonsense and she was describing an example when she worked um at a different place where she was doing this um public interactive display and it kind of had sparks and it was science related and a young person came over to her and said can I set that on fire and she went well um um well uh that would mean this 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 and this and he was silent and then he looked at her and just said that was posh and long you just needed to say no (laughs) and she she said that is a great lesson for me that was posh and long I just needed to say no (laughs)
0: that uh, kid is amazing I want to meet that kid but I just thought that was such a great story and I really
1: I'm so glad that she felt you could share it um, because yeah working with young people is always great for that
0: yeah the jargon can be intense I, I find as I'm getting up to speed in design thinking and and reading and being in that space Sometimes I'm shaking my head at the same time because I have such a distaste for jargon sometimes. I, I feel like it's it's a new language that I may have to to take on and at least be able to receive the information from. Whether I choose to distill it and send it back or play the game is to be determined. But, but I, I, I think it's such an interesting point. And that kid, man... That is bravo, bravo, I little know. man.
1: <laughs> I know. I we know. We were saying, how can we apply this in life? Just be less <laughs> posh and less long.
0: <laughs> is the question of how can I apply this in life something that you come back to a lot too?
1: Yeah, this is our obsession with curiosity, isn't it? And always, always <laughs> trying to do things better. Um, yeah, all the time.
0: Well, why not, right? When In the face of new and potentially helpful information, why not think about how to get the rubber to meet the road a little more?
1: Absolutely. I think I drive everyone mad. If ever I go to, um, you know, if I go to an event or if I go to a new meeting and it, and it might be a tech company or it might be a meteorologist or it might be an artist, I always come back and I say, I've got an idea. And I think it just drives everyone absolutely to distraction <laughs> because I <they> think, <laughs> this is great, we can learn from this. Um, and actually we do, these, we do these sessions at the museum that we call Art of the Possible sessions where we get in speakers from lots of different sectors to talk about an experience or a project that they've run um, so that we can, we can share that experience with the team. So it, it can range from a museum or a tech company or an artist or someone. But yeah, I, I always believed that, that you can always learn from other things from other people and then apply them to your own life.
0: And I think we also share a common ability to not be snobby about where the information is coming from. Like I think, or I tend to believe, and you can tell me if you agree with it or not, that everyone can be a teacher in some way. It may not be the way we want them to be a teacher, right? Like I look at our president number 45 and think, okay, that's not how I would do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a note of, like, that's not working. That's not how I would want a leader to be. That's not how I would want to be as a leader. And it's not always positive learning, but I think everyone can be a teacher. Is that something you consider important as well?
1: I, I think so. So I think school teachers should be on a pedestal and do one of the most incredible jobs I, I, in society. But in a sort of small-t teacher, yeah, I think... I think everybody has something to teach us and I absolutely love it when I'm surprised by something. So I love it when people have a weird and wonderful hobby or area of expertise. or knowledge. <laughs> I love that but also we're talking about shame earlier. Too, it's always to my shame and I try not to do it when I underestimate people. I think that's the worst thing you can do is when you underestimate people so absolutely yes to, to value people's diversity and think that they're a rich human being absolutely
0: and they can be fascinating for so many different ways like i i have a a former client and i I can call her a friend at this point and dare say like she she really inspires me in a lot of ways and she is a biology professor and has this deep long studied knowledge of sea snails right? It is this thing that is like so, so, so specific. But I feel like I'm always fascinated when I come into contact with people like that and just get so excited and feel like everything inside my being sort of bubble up where I think I'm going to learn something good today.
1: (laughs) I adore that. That's one of the best things about working in a museum is someone who might have a really particular specialism about rivets on a particular door that was made at a particular time in a particular place that yeah it's that it's that back to always
0: being curious about things. How do you find you draw information out of people like that? I feel like sometimes I have the propensity to my tail starts wagging and I get very visibly excited and then I pummel them with a hundred questions and sometimes like Craig has to kind of much like Sandman at Showtime at the Apollo like you know ride out blasting a horn and and kind of have a hook to sort of pull me away from this person before I just wear them down what helps you balance that curiosity and not being as much of a social doofus as I can be sometimes first of
1: all I don't think that's true that that happens (laughs) um and secondly I think I probably have the same thing so maybe we should just both pretend that doesn't exist
0: (laughs) or we just need to start a support group
1: <laughs> for people who ask intense questions and get over excited yeah <laughs> i i have the same th- i have the same thing i get very easily excited um, and if i think something's important i get extra excited so um someone will just say oh i happen to know about this and i'm like what and i, I actually you do the same thing <laughs> and my mind is visibly blown um yeah I think that's that's always something to to balance but actually I would rather it was that way around and that I was excited by things it's something I try I'm, I don't ever want to become so jaded that I lose that so I I take your point about trying to temper it slightly maybe we both maybe we both need to relax a bit but um, <laughs> Let's not lose it. Let's not lose it because that's what makes us send each other a thousand book recommendations.
0: Well, I guess the opposite piece of that, or the the adjacent piece of that, is I come away from events sometimes, and I have actually overexhausted myself. Right? Like I think back to where you were describing earlier, like that you specifically carve out time to run, to be in nature, to be around trees, to to have that quiet space. I feel like sometimes the curiosity and, and then when I'm in the presence of someone that has some super duper dope specialized knowledge that I might never be able to interact with this person again, I get so excited that then I get in the car and it's like I'm shattered and just like want to fall asleep sometimes. What does it look like for you? Are you better able to balance that? And if so, what helps? I know exactly what you mean.
1: And then I think back to, to being a teenager and being at school and, and being and learning all the time. And I think learning is kind of exhausting. And, and that maybe that is just I'm OK with that. Yeah,
0: I do. I do get the same thing. But so you see it as a necessary part of the process. Like it happens. It's not something to be mitigated or adjusted in any way.
1: I don't think so because equally, if I'm not interested in something, I have the opposite thing where it won't it won't exhaust me at all. So actually, if if I come away and I'm like ah ba ba and I'm all of the arm <laughs> then I'm really inspired. <laughs> all of the arm movements and all of the capital letters. Um, I think that's part of it, and that usually means that actually I need time to reflect and, and process what what I've just heard. Which is what you know when I take myself off for a little run and, and let myself process it.
0: Is that where the processing and reflection takes place? Simply when you run, or are you cataloging it or organizing it in some other ways too?
1: No, I think it's not. I think in, in lots of ways, it's usually related to movement for me, and I've reflected on this a lot. So it might be walking or running or meandering in some kind of way so actually i'm doodling at the moment because i'm thinking about what you're saying um me too (laughs) (laughs) Um, we've got this great object in our collection in our first world war galleries and it's from it's from one of the conferences um at the end of the war and it shows the doodles of one of the big political leaders from that conference so they're making this huge world-changing decision and yet they're scribbling on a pad at the same at the same time now I'm sure when some people look at that they think he wasn't paying attention but I look at it and I know I that's that's what I would have been doing I I I love that object so much
0: yes and this was something that I have been reprimanded in past roles for and I this was yet probably in my 20s and early in my career and still being in finance and i have just a a strange looping pattern that if given a margin of a page and i'm in a meeting especially with a lot of intensity and a lot of different voices and perspectives i will just start doodling down the margin and it's it's literally for Decades. It's been a very like similar pattern. So I don't even really necessarily have to think about it. Like it's it's just automatic. And I would get in trouble constantly. I had this one boss that I I think if he could have crucified me for it, he probably would have. And he just was like, you're not focused. You're not taking this seriously. You're not a team player. And I didn't. Understand it. It wasn't until I was training to be a coach and learning about learning styles that it made sense to me. But that was what was literally keeping my brain from just like not being at the grocery store or that last exhibit that I saw at MoMA or the movie I saw a few days ago. Like that was actually keeping me in the room and keeping me focused and helping me like connect everything. So I'm so glad you brought this up, and I'm so glad that I'm not alone, and yay to kinesthetic learning.
1: Well, also, now you can point to David Lloyd George and the uh, the Treaty of Versailles, so
0: <laughs> I've given you an example. Thank you for more evidence. <laughs> Susie, this conversation, like many of the conversations we've had leading up to this, have just left me so inspired I feel like I almost want to talk to you about coming back next year and us just picking up on all of the things that are fascinating us by by that point as well but I want to hand the final question to you what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today
1: I hope that there have been some some little little specks in there that will just make people think so we've covered such big ground from really personal stuff about how we both doodle to kind of big narratives um around conflict and actually maybe rather than a maybe rather than a big takeaway they should just enjoy the meander that we've had and the fact that we met in a place and often found ourselves in a bar having very intense conversations about (laughs) books or art and um (laughs) And maybe they should just meander with us rather than than take any great big learning from it. What, What do you want them to take from it?
0: I am always inspired every time I have the opportunity to interact and have a conversation with you. I feel like I come away with resources and books and I can't tell you even just the joy of having an excuse to benevolently stalk you online and i know you're not on social media but it was also like just getting to parse through like getting to watch the video of the great fire of london where london was burning again 350 years later you know getting to see and having a little glimpse of of what it might be like to walk in your shoes and think about just the kind of questions I wanted to ask you. Like, how do you experience the work that you do? How do you, how do other people experience the things that you're creating? I don't know. I just think you're such a fascinating woman, a fascinating human being doing really fascinating things. So it is, it is just a joy to connect. And I hope I hope other women really loved how we meander. I think any regular podcast listeners know that my conversations are often loopy and and circular. And, you know, we talk about burnout and we talk about bullshit some days. But also, I just I think people are so interesting and you are definitely one of those people.
1: Well, thank you. I think you're also one of those people. Maybe that's what people should take. Meet great people who love meandering with you. (laughs) Like
0: find find the other loopy human beings in life and draw them in. (laughs) (laughs) Susie,
1: thank you. Thank you. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. And we've been to all kinds of places.
0: Wow. Thank you for taking this intellectual curiosity soaked meander with Susie and I. Didn't Susie just leave you with so many ideas and things to think about? Any of the resources that we mentioned can be found over at LeVitalCoreSalon.com. So that's L E Vital, salon.com. And I want to encourage you to Google. Imperial War Museums, and just take a look at what they're doing, all of the different projects. I know Susie and I just barely scratched the surface of everything going on. If you enjoyed this conversation, or what Susie is creating in the world, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one human you know, and subscribe to Levital Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to all the people that helped make this episode come to fruition. That's Alex Hudson. That's Craig Snyder. That's Darlene Victoria. That's Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone. The High Dials. Mwah. And until next time, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.